Today's reading comes from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you, Peter. Good morning. Welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Brooks. Be bringing you the word this morning as we are continuing. We are almost to the end of our series in the letter that Peter wrote to the exiles, First Peter. And I want to want to open by asking this question. As, as you notice from the reading, uh, the reading, at least part of the reading, deals with with church leadership and some instructions to church leaders. So I want to ask you the question. And just have you ponder this and think about it. Um, what does a congregation need most from its leaders? Don't have to answer out loud. I just want you to think about that. What, what is the greatest need? Somebody's not happy with me. <laughs> um, what's the greatest need uh, that a congregation, a people has from its from its pastors or pastor if you if there's just one uh, by way of extension i would also ask this question what's what's what does a family need most from a father what does a family need most from a mother what does a husband need most from his wife what does a wife need most from her husband what do citizens need most from their government officials what do employees need most from their employers? What do employers need most from their employees? What do brothers need from their... You, you see where this is going? The, the, the same answer should be the same for every single question. Uh, Robert Murray McShane, who was a preacher in Scotland in the 1840s, only lived, died young died young, uh, age of 40, he, he once said this. He says, my congregation's greatest need is for my personal holiness. That's it. What this church needs most from, from Brooks is my personal holiness. What your family needs most from you is your personal holiness. What your employers need most from you is your personal holiness. What your employer needs from you is your personal holiness. Do you, you see the pattern here? Now, Peter, this is something that we looked at earlier in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. Peter says that we are called to be holy because he is holy. Now, what does that even mean? It sounds out there or up there. It sounds unattainable. Holiness is just to, to practically, practically be as Christ is, or to become Christ-like. 
to become Christ-like. That's what holiness is. So don't, don't overthink this. To be holy is to be like Christ. That's what a church needs from its pastors. That's what a family needs from its mother or father or husband or wife. That's what the world needs to see from the church is a people who are called, who are set apart, who are uniquely different, uniquely different in that they are Christ-like. And that's the same thing as holy. Now, one of the greatest attributes of holiness or Christ-likeness is, is the concept of humility, the characteristic of humility. And that's, that's, what it, that's what we're going to cover. That's what the text covers this morning. And I'm, I'm going to be honest. I typed out the title, and I just looked at it, and I thought, ah, that sounds pretentious. How many of you look at that and think, that sounds pretentious? Just a show of hands. That sounds pretentious. What else am I supposed to write? We're looking at a passage that talks about how to be holy. So are, are we not called to be holy? Are we not called to be humble? Does the Bible instruct us through the gospel how to become holy? How to become holy? Humble. Yes or no? Yes. Then how is it pretentious to talk about what the Bible teaches? The reason we think it's pretentious is twofold. We don't measure up. And if we're really honest, we don't want to actually be humble. So it's best just to say, well, that's pretentious. That way we don't have to actually strive towards being humble or being holy. So we're going to get over our false humility and we're going to actually look at the Bible to see what it says about how to appropriate the gospel so that we might become humble. Four things we're going to look at. First of all, humility defined. I'm going to attempt to understand what it is we're looking at. Humility applied in terms of here's what Peter says about two different opportunities to be humble from the perspective of the church pastor and those who are not pastors. And then holiness demonstrated in the person of Christ. And then holiness or holiness. I keep saying holiness and humility. I mean, this, I mean both. But in this context, humility, humility then acquired, humility acquired through the appropriation of the gospel. So turn to first Peter chapter five, and then we will, uh, we will pray and we will get into the text. Father, we come before you recognizing our complete need of you. We thank you for the inspiration of uh, the word of God that Peter has written for us here in this letter. Father, would you help us to believe? Would you help us to apply? Would you help us to become the kind of people, Lord, who as a matter of their new nature um, seek to follow you, seek to obey you and love you and serve you. Father, we are not humble in our own selves, in our own nature. It's not natural for us to consider the needs of others above ourselves. What's natural is to be selfish. So, Father, we are recognizing what we are naturally is not humble. But what we have call, are called to be supernaturally is like you. So help us to, to grow this morning as we trust in you. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're actually going to, to start at the end of the text that was readed. I, re- readed. I went to college. <laughs> the text that was read. So this is an exercise in humility. So uh, we're going to start at the end. This is where the te- we're going to begin at the end. 
then we're going to go back to the beginning, and then we're going to end here again. So the last section of the, the scripture that was read, 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, the second half of that verse ends, the, the text ends with, clothe yourselves, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. So it's a summary statement of what he has just said, which we're going to come back to. So the summary statement is, clothe yourselves, all of you, whether you're a pastor or whether you're not a pastor, whether you're male or female, adult, child, whether you are a husband or a wife or single, doesn't matter, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards, towards one another, for, for God opposes. He's in opposition to the proud, to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So when we're talking about humility, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. The word humility, you look it up in, the, in, in Webster's dictionary, humility is a modest or low view of one's own importance. Humbleness, a low view of one's importance. Now, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say a low view of oneself. Okay, there is such a thing as false humility. False humility is, oh, I don't have any gifts. Oh, I'm terrible. Oh, I'm this. No, that, that's not true. You are created in the image of God. You are an image bearer of God, and you have dignity and worth and value. But this humility is a low view of one's own importance. Importance. It doesn't, I'm not the most important person in the room or even in this little circle. Right here, Christ is. So it's, it's, it's recognizing, it's a right view of self. That's what humility is. To be humble, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. To be humble is having or showing a modest or low estimate of one's own importance. You see the, the connection there. That's the, that's the meaning of the English word. The, the Greek words which are used here, uh, humility is a humble attitude, it means to be without arrogance. To be humble, uh, the Greek word means pertaining to being meek, the quality of meekness, with an implication of low status. Low status. So that's what it means. That's what it means. So that's the definition. So we'll quickly now move into humility applied as Peter lays this out. So when you see humility, what does it look like in the context of the interaction of people within the body of Christ? Well, first of all, to those who are overseers, elders, shepherds, pastors. Here's what Peter says. So, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples, examples to the flock. Now, let's just pause there for a second. First of all, who is Peter addressing here? He's addressing the elders. Now, notice that that term is plural. That term is plural. Um, many of you come from, from smaller congregations, perhaps, and you, wherever you grew up, if you grew up going to church, and you're used to having a pastor, or uh, he's talking to a plurality of elders. He's talking about individuals, 
individuals. Elder is a term. Elder is a term, uh, a position, if you will. That's the person. So uh, elder is a person. The elders among you as a fellow elder. Now, Peter says as a fellow elder. That's interesting because Peter is an apostle, is he not? He could have dropped the do this because, boom, I'm an apostle. But he doesn't do that. Why? What What does he call himself? A fellow elder. In other words, he says, I'm one of you. What is he demonstrating here? He's demonstrating the very thing that he's asking them to demonstrate, humility. He's not pulling the I spent time on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus card. He's not call it pulling the I walked alongside Jesus and I, uh, why? Because he is being an example of their very thing that he's calling them to be. So as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, the sufferings of Christ. This also is interesting. He, he didn't say as a witness of the glorification of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He says of the sufferings of Christ. Now, when, when Jesus was suffering, what was Peter doing? Hiding, denying. So the very fact that he would highlight this, it brings about something which is not flattering about his, his discipleship. In other words, he's exercising humility as he's teaching about humility, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. So what does he tell these elders, these these fellow elders? He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Two verbs here, to shepherd. That's where we get the word pastor, poimian. It's, it's a verb and it can be used as a noun. So in its, in its verb form, it means to look over the flock, to shepherd, to look over the flock, to care for the flock. Now, when it's used in its noun form as a shepherd, it's a, it's a noun. Well, this is a person who looks over the flock. It's like the word Google. Google is a noun. Google is a verb as well. When you Google something, you look something up. And Google is a uh, web browser. It's both a noun and a verb, depending on how it's used. So a shepherd, shepherd the flock that is uh, of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Now, this is the particular way in which shepherds or pastors or elders, these are interchangeable terms, they, they give oversight. They pay attention to the needs of, of the body of Christ. They pay attention. They pay attention to, to what, what's lacking, to what, what needs to be taught, who needs to be ministered to, who needs to be cared for. And that's why, that's why the term is plural. There is no way, there is no way one elder can oversee the flock. There's, there's just, it just, it's, not, it's not even practical. Now, there's some characteristics here where some care, compare and contrast. Let's take a look in, in verse, uh, verse 2. First of all, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. That's the first contrast. Not because you have to. Not begrudgingly. Oh, I hate the sheep. They are so obnoxious. Oh, okay, fine. I'll, I'll oversee them. I'll care for them. No, but not, not, not because you are compelled to under compulsion, but willingly. Paul says that whoever aspires to the task of an overseer or elder desires a noble task. You should enter this overseeing willingly, and it should be a desire. It should be a desire. 
uh, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Also, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. That, that phrase, shameful gain, is most often attributed to the, for the acquisition of cash. In other words, you're doing it to get something out of it. So it isn't because you love the flock and you love Christ. It's because there's something to be gained from it. There's something to be gained from it. And you can, you can just go through late night TV and, and, and watch different TV preachers that are, are, are making a lot, of, a lot of cash doing what they're doing. So there, you can fleece the flock. Peter's saying, don't do that. Don't be that guy. Don't be those people who are, who are uh, see, see the flock as a means to an end, the end being their own exaltation, their own glorification, and their own comfort. Don't be that person. But eagerly, eagerly. Third, how you do it. This is really important. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Do you remember in the Gospels, all the different times that the apostles, the disciples as they're following Jesus, had a tendency to argue over who was going to be the best, who was going to be the greatest. You remember those conversations? And, and Jesus said, what are you arguing about? And they were, nothing. It's like, no, I know what you're arguing about. You're arguing about which of you is going to be the greatest. You want to know how to be the great, greatest? You want to be great? You got to be the servant, the slave of all. You take a look at the Gentiles. The way they lead is to lord it over those who are under the charge, but it should never be so among you. If you want to be great, you have to become a servant. You have to become a servant. That's what Peter's talking about. That's what Peter is talking about. Don't be the kind of elders who, who drop the submit card. By the way, as a leader, as a leader, as a husband, as, as whatever, whatever, whoever, if you're in any kind of authority as a boss, if you have to continually play the submit card, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. That's not, Peter's not saying, make sure they know you're in charge. He's saying, no, lead by example. Lead by example. In, in a sense, there is spiritual authority and, 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 and called to submit to spiritual authority as we're called to submit to all sorts of different kinds of authority. But the way in which we lead, the way in which we lead is through servant leadership, not domineering. Not domineering. And when the chief shepherd appears, chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Who's the chief shepherd? Do you know the Bible never identifies a senior pastor except in this particular passage? And who is the senior pastor? Jesus. He's the only senior pastor that exists. It's weird and somewhat uncomfortable that I have a title which is called the lead pastor. He's the lead pastor. Now, I'm accountable to this particular flock. He's accountable to the flock. But the chief shepherd, and how did the chief shepherd lead? By serving, by laying down his life. So that's, that's, what, that's what Peter is saying. This is, this is how you ought to lead. It looks this particular way. Now, now he, he moves into, 
he moves into another application. Likewise, and this is a theme with Peter. So likewise, likewise, likewise. When we were in chapter 2 and chapter 3, he kept using this word. So now he's, talked to, he's, he's spoken about those who are in authority. Now he's going to move into those who are not in spiritual authority, but they're in a context where they're relationally related to those elders that he's speaking to. He says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject. There's that phrase again, be subject. We've seen be subject to the governing authorities. We've seen be subject to your masters. We've seen wives be subject to your husbands. That is, recognize the authority that's there and lovingly place yourself under that authority. That doesn't mean that you're less than in terms of human dignity or worth or value, but there's, there's an order in which things work. And he says, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves. Who? All of you, whether you are an elder, whether you are someone who is not an elder, regardless of who you are, all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I just want to speak just for a second on what it means to, to be subject to the elders. What does that mean? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. If Brooke should call you up and tell you that you should name your firstborn son Brooks, please do not submit to that elder. That's utter nonsense. My authority begins and ends with whatever the text says, period. That's it. So if you are in a church where your elders or your leaders are instructing you to submit to them when what they are telling you is not in Scripture, that is an abuse of authority, and you, should not, you shouldn't do that. So it just simply means if they're teaching the word of God, place yourself under the word of God, which they are teaching you. The role of a shepherd is to feed sheep. And what do sheep eat? They eat the word of God. That's, that's what we, that's what I chew on. That's, that's what I eat. That's what nourishes me. And that's what you eat. And that's what nourishes you. That's what the sheep need. So to submit to the elders means to submit to the word of God, which they present to you. That's it. There's a lot of different ways that you can look at church history and you can look at modern, modern churches and you can see that's an abuse of power. And in each one of those cases, whether it's a church, in, or church history in the past or whether it's modern churches living out their, their denominational or, or non-denominational affiliations and so forth, whenever you see pastoral abuse, it's a shepherd behaving not like a shepherd but like a king. Do you see that? It's important. Now, so what happens when your shepherds are not behaving shepherd-like? What do you do? I'll tell you what most people do. They just leave. And, And sometimes that's appropriate. In other words, you vote with your feet. You just, I stopped attending that church. Why? Because the pastors aren't pastorly. The shepherds aren't shepherd like So forth and so on. That's one way to do it. But if you do it that way, if you do it that way, you shirk your responsibility to, to live with humility towards one another. Do you know that your pastors, the elders in your church, they're frail and, and uh, fallible human beings just like you. And they need to be rebuked and they need to be exhorted and they need to be challenged. Well, who's going to challenge them? Who's going to call them to account when they are walking in, 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 in error? Who? The flock. 
Oh, oh, unless, of course, they decide to just leave, which you can do. Some of the most meaningful conversations that I've had with people in the body of Christ have not been, Brooks, you know that sermon series? It was just so awesome. I was so blessed. That just puffs my ego, and which I enjoy, by the way, but it's not necessarily healthy for me. But some of the things which have been hardest to hear from you, the congregation, have been most beneficial for me. It was probably, it was pre-COVID, maybe three years ago. I remember getting an email from from one of you, and this person wanted to meet for coffee and just share some concerns they have. And by the way, immediately when I get an email like that, I'm just like, oh, oh no, I... I'm a human being, and I don't like criticism. Who likes criticism, right? But nonetheless, I prayerfully uh, met with this person, and they very lovingly and very humbly explained why they had a difficult time with my preaching. And they they were spot on, spot on. This person actually had the courage to tell me that Brooks... You preach the Bible very well in terms of helping me and my family understand what the text says. You do that well. However, you're very crass. And in your attempt to be humorous, you cross lines, which are not helpful for my boys. Guilty as charged. That is a fact. And I would have in my arrogance and prideful youth as a pastor, put it off to, well, that's just the way I'm wired. Well, yeah, well, unwire yourself. Ask the Holy Spirit to bring about a change. That's, that's what, see the give and take here? And he did that in humility. And in my response, I'm like, you know what? Unfortunately, I agree with you. I wish that what you were saying is not true, but it is true. And I need to grow up. I need to grow up. So that's, what, that's the exchange of, of humility between someone who is an oversight and someone who is, is, is not an oversight. But do you see how that works? So ironically, he submitted to his spiritual authority in confronting his spiritual authority, and then his spiritual authority submitted to the Lord in his admonition. Do you see how that works? That's the exchange of humility. I just wish that that were more common in my life. It, it's there. It's not there. It depends on the day. depends on whether or not I'm practicing the presence of Christ. But that's what it looks like. So humility demonstrated. We see it in the person of Christ, the chief shepherd. So if you want to become holy, what does holiness look like? It looks like Jesus. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Peter was there when he said this. There's no doubt that he remembers this as he's talking about what it means to be a shepherd because he's looking to the chief shepherd, and this is the characteristic of the chief shepherd. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. I am gentle. That is my nature. I am, I am naturally gentle, said Brooks Never. But that's, what, that's who he is. I am gentle and, and 
lowly in heart. The word lowly there is the same Greek word which, which is translated humble in 1 Peter 5. It's the same word. Humble or humble in heart, lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A humbling experience this week as I was studying for this passage. I'm looking at all the, the, the Greek words for humble, for humility, for lowly, for all of these things. And I learned that the, not the word that's translated lowly or humble, but when that word humble or lowly is, is joined in the Greek to kardias, uh, which is heart, humble in heart or humble in spirit sometimes is translated, that phrase, that phrase may be expressed or was understood as speaking only soft words or without shouting. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and those of you that are, you know the people that are laughing? The people that have been coming to Grace Community Church for a long time. Because typically, at some point, I would get emotionally worked into a frenzy, and I just start yelling. Usually when I'm angry at myself, I'm giving some illustration of how I failed, and then I'm just like, I'm hulking out, I'm, I'm down like this, veins are popping out of my forehead, spit is flying out into the third and fourth rows, and I'm just an angry... I almost said the word that I told you that I'm not allowed to say. I'm just an angry man. And I'm shouting. And here I'm looking at this. It's like, in other words, I have a lot of growing to do. I have a lot of, and I am growing, but I have a lot more to do, as we all do, right? None of us have arrived. None of us have arrived. So humility's greatest demonstration is the person of Christ. Now, let's move on to, with the time we have left, to, okay, how do we do this? Peter gives us a verb. He says, clothe yourselves, put it on. Now, if he says clothe yourselves, what does that assume that, that you'd lack? Clothing. Clothing. We're naked. We're, in a sense, we don't have it. He knows that. It's not natural for me to be humble. It's not natural for you to be humble. It's not natural for me to be uh, holy in, in and of myself apart from Christ. But he says, clothe yourselves. Put this on. Clothe yourselves all of you, pastors, uh, those who are not pastors, men, women, children, older people, whatever, whatever your status, whatever your, your place in life, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. Why? Because God opposes the proud. If you refuse to clothe yourselves with humility, God will be your opponent, not your enemy, but your opponent. He will oppose you. He will hinder you. He's not going to give you what you want if your goal is self-exaltation. He's going to give you what you need, which is humility. He opposes the proud, but contrast that with what he, what he does for the humble. What does he do for the humble in this verse? He gives them grace. He gives them grace. He gives us what we don't deserve. Grace, not just in terms of saving grace, but sanctifying grace, which, which brings about the change which makes us holy and humble. Now, a couple things which are helpful, which are not found here in 1 Peter, but will be helpful for us. 
clothe yourselves. Turn, in, turn your Bibles to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. I think this is a helpful word picture that Paul uses as he's talking about the same thing Peter is talking about, just in greater detail and, and covering more character aspects. But Ephesians chapter 4, verse 21. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, that is Jesus, as the truth that is in Jesus, to put off, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Okay, stop right there. Okay, so to put off, what's the opposite of humility? Pride, pride. Pride is to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. That is the natural disposition. That is the sin of the devil. That is what caused Satan to fall. And that's what he appealed to Adam and Eve with in the garden. You know better. You know better. The, all sin, all sin travels through pride. All sin travels through pride, which is a lack of humility. Anytime you and I choose to disobey what we know we ought to do, it means that we think that we know better than God, which is the most arrogant position that we can have at any given moment. That is, that's the essence of pride. So to put it off means to repent. It means to repent. It means to recognize, recognize your error, recognize that you're being proud. In any context, I'm not obedient, whatever that is. I'm not being holy. I'm being proud to recognize that and repent. And ultimately, this is a misplaced hope. All of this, all of this, to be humble means to have your hope rightly aligned and placed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If my hope is in anything uh, which is, 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 is not eternal, which is temporal, if my hope is in being approved of by, by you, by being approved of by my wife, by, by, by gaining power, by gaining pleasure, by gaining all of these things which, which are fading. If I place my hope in those things, then I will, I will act in pride. I will act in pride. So to put off, it means to repent. It means to repent, to recognize and to repent. But don't stop there. Um, I believe over the years, I'm going to tell you a secret. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. I had a false view of what humility was. I think, looking back over the last 30 years, that there were times that I believed that to be humble was simply to, to own your faults quickly and with a sense of vulnerability and, and not to hide your faults, to be quick to recognize where you're wrong. Now, is that an aspect of humility? Absolutely. You, in fact, it's a prerequisite. You can't be humble without being quick to recognize where you're wrong. However, being honest about failure is not the same thing as humility. Did you know that you can be very honest about being a narcissist and still be a narcissist? That, so that putting off, recognizing it, calling it out, saying sin is sin is part of it, but it's not all of it. It's part of it. Put on Christ. 
So there's something to stop doing. There's something to recognize and repent of. And then there's something to start doing or start becoming that we're currently not doing. And that's to put on Christ. So in, in Ephesians chapter, chapter 4, verse 22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. You remember 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13? It says, set your hope fully, be, be, be self-controlled in your minds and set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed. This is about what you do with your minds. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Paul says in Romans chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 2. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, let's get into this. What does this look like? Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, contrast, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. How many of you, that's a natural, that's, that's my default, totally looking to the interests of others, always doing that. I just naturally gravitate towards, how can I serve this person? How can I build this person up? Is that your default? It's not my default. So, so how do we make it our default? How do we make this our default? I can tell you how not to make it your fault, default. You can guess what I'm going to say. Just stop being proud. Just start being humble. That's... That's an oversimplification. It's true. Yes, we need to be humble and not be proud. But that, that just gives us the instruction. That's not enough. That is not enough. We need to appropriate the gospel. So fortunately, Paul doesn't end with verse 4. Let each you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. I'm an expert at looking to my own interests. I'm so good at looking to my own interests and seeing to have my needs met. I just, I don't even need to practice it. However, looking to the interests of others requires that I become something that I'm not naturally, that isn't natural for me. And and the same for you. How do we do it? Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I'm going to come back to that. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human nature, form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Okay, go back to verse five. Look at the verse. Have this mind amongst, your, amongst yourself. Now, what does that mean? He's talking about what he just said in verses one through four. Be humble. Don't consider just your own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourself. Now, here's the hard part, but that's not how I naturally think. But what does he say in verse five? Have this mind amongst yourself, comma, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's already acquired this for you. So how does a person who is not naturally loving become loving? By trying harder to love? 
good luck. How does a person who's not naturally humble become humble? By trying harder to be humble? Good luck with that. How? How, how do I? How? By drawing near to Jesus and having his mind. This is your mind in Christ Jesus. We watch two baptisms. Do you know what baptism signifies? Union with Christ. Union with Christ. When someone is baptized, what they are saying to you is that I have been crucified in Christ and I no longer live. But the life I live in the body, I, in the flesh, I live by the, by the Son of God, faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is Christ living through us. So the work, the work, the hard work that you and I do is to abide, is to, is to practice his presence, is to draw near to him. In our pride, we come to him as we are. There's no other way that we can come to him. You know that Jesus accepts you just as you are? Did you know that? Do you believe that? How, how else are you supposed to be except the way that you are? Are you supposed to be some other way? To come to him any other way would be to be false. So how does Brooks come to him when he's proud? As proud. And what does he do? Jesus, I'm proud. Here's how I was proud today. And here's how I dishonored you today. And here's how that caused a train wreck in my marriage today or in my relationship today. Tell him what he already knows. Come to, you, come to him as exactly as you are and tell him that. And then ask him, to show you who you are in him. And that's what it means to have the mind of Christ, to know who you are in Jesus. Fully loved. Notice that he was found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? Why why was Jesus baptized? Was Jesus baptized by John because he needed to be cleansed from his sin? No, he was sinless. Why did he become baptized? He became baptized so that he could identify with with his people. He entered into solidarity with them. He stepped off the throne and entered into the manger so he could become one of us to take our sins upon himself so that he might give us grace, so that he might give us forgiveness, so that he might give us union in him. And in that union, all of his attributes, his love, his humility, his gentleness, all the things that we're not naturally, he gives us, give those things to us as we draw near to him. And he actually begins to bring those fruits, those, those, that fruit out in us. Change is absolutely possible but not simply by trying harder to be something you're not, but by trying hard to draw near to him. So there is a putting off and a putting on. But the most important thing about this is drawing near to him and being honest about your failure and then asking for grace. And that's the essence of humility. It's just simply being honest, but then taking it a step further and asking for what you lack, which is grace to be humble, which is grace to be loving some very practical things that you can do as we close. Three things. If you're a note taker, write these down. Ask the Lord in prayer this week, how do you want me to grow in humility? Notice there's not a, Lord, do you want me to grow in humility? That's an assumption of... Do you have a pulse? Yes, then you have pride. Well, then you need to grow in humility, right? 
So how, in what ways? Ask the Lord to show you. How do you want me to grow in humility? Secondly, and it's based upon this verse, whose interests shall I consider? I mentioned this a couple sermons ago, but uh, let each of you look not only to the interest, his own interests, but also the interests of others. You know the problem with the words others or everyone? That means no one. If, if we're looking to the interests of others, the generic others, that's everybody, not us, then there's a good chance that we won't actually consider the, 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 the needs of anyone. So ask the Lord to put a face on other. Who? Who is the person? What's their name? What's what's their need? What are their interests? What are their interests? And then third, how shall I demonstrate my new concern? Which is considering their, their interests, their needs. That's a demonstration of humility. That's a wonderful three-step prayer for an elder to pray, for me to pray. It's also a wonderful three-step prayer for a follower of Christ that's not an elder to pray. Because as we do that, what happens is we become clothed with humility. And Christ lives his life through us and other people are blessed as they see and experience the holiness of God through the people of God. As we close in prayer this morning, if you have a need of a prayer, illness, a struggle, you'd like to receive Christ, any of those things, or anything God has put on your heart, or you just feel burdened, I encourage you to come forward, share your need with uh, myself or, or some of the other people that are coming up here for prayer, and we'd love to pray with and for you. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your grace. Lord, we come to you because we need you. It is our natural default position to be proud. It is our natural default position to be self-sufficient and act as if we have no needs. Lord, it is our natural default position to be selfish, to seek to uh, glorify ourselves. And Lord, we acknowledge that and we confess it to you and we ask for grace. Lord, we ask for grace. We ask that you would help us to become the kind of people who, as a matter of our new nature in Christ, love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves, looking to, uh, to meet their needs and to encourage them and to strengthen them and to exalt and glorify you. Lord, we pray that you would accomplish this so that your bride might become holy and that Christ might be exalted amongst the nations. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Go in grace, and we will see you next week.